You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. An amazing thing happened here in Seattle uh, on Pride a, a couple of weeks back, a couple of Sundays ago. Uh, Anti gay protesters showed up at the Pride Parade. That's not amazing. That happens every year. One year, a few years ago at Pride here in Seattle, one of the anti-gay protesters holding up huge signs that say repent or perish and gay sex is sinful and you're all going to hell basically uh, got into a fistfight with another person at the Pride Parade. And this was talked about all over the right-wing blogosphere as evidence of how intolerant gay people are. Look, this person showed up at Pride holding a sign condemning everyone and somebody punched that guy. And – as it turned out, the guy who punched that guy was a straight guy who came to the Pride Parade with his wife, who the protester with the anti-gay sign called a whore, and they got into a little fist fight. Had nothing actually to do with queer people at all or our inability to tolerate these motherfuckers. We tolerate these motherfuckers year after year. Pride, which happens on Sunday, it's kind of gay Easter. Comes once a year, a lot of pastel colors, a lot of people in crazy dresses out in public and silly hats. It's gay Easter. And they come to our gay Easter every year, these quote-unquote Christian protesters, to, to take a big dump in front of us, to condemn us and call us sinners and sick and sinful and insult us and call us pedophiles. And every year we kind of put up with it. And we get no credit those years when one of these motherfuckers doesn't get what they deserve, which is a punch in the face. We get no credit for how tolerant we are of them. When they show up and nothing happens. But if they show up and something happens, oh, then we're the intolerant ones. Can you imagine what would happen if gay people went to churches on Easter Sunday and held up signs that said, you look ridiculous and there is no God. Sodomy is more fun and passed out flyers to their children about how to come out to your parents about being queer on the off chance that some of these kids are going to be queer, they're going to need to know how to do this. So it would actually be the Lord's work to pass those flyers out to those children being dragged into churches on Easter Sunday by their families. Could, but could you imagine the reaction? It wouldn't be one gay person getting punched in the nose once on Easter Sunday showing up at a church. It would be gay people being beaten to death outside of churches on Easter Sunday if we showed up at their Easter, which we do not do because we have no interest in fucking with them. We have really no interests in disrupting their Easter. But the Christians, the anti-gay, right-wing, batshit, nutty Christians, they come every Sunday, every Pride Sunday, every queer Easter. They are there to condemn and to shout down. And this year in Seattle, the anti-gay protesters showed up and somehow hustled themselves to the front of the parade. They were blocking the start of the parade or they were going to be the first contingent in the parade. And God bless her, Mama Tits. She's a drag queen here in Seattle. She grabbed the microphone from the reviewing stand uh, where she was emceeing and walked down the street and confronted the protesters, walked right up to them and called bullshit on them to their faces. Let's take a little listen to what Mama Tits had to say.
1.5 million views on YouTube. I just, you know, I don't have much to add here except a right on Mama Tets. And congratulations on your viral video. Every drag queen would like to have a viral video. Wouldn't it be great if every drag queen had a viral video where they were shouting down a bigot? Which is Mama Tits' claim to fame on YouTube and everywhere else right now. And it is, it is awesome. I also want to congratulate my friends in Chicago. These same anti-gay bigots, the same stripe of anti-gay bigots showed up at the Chicago Pride Parade and held up big signs. Repent or perish is a favorite. They also have one that says Dirty Homo with the words, don't think Christ accepts you, homo, stop sinning. Also sprinkled throughout. That's the message. And the way we usually deal with these motherfuckers uh, is we make fun of them. People hold up signs next to them with arrows that say closet cases. They get in front of them. My friends in Chicago, uh, it became a, a moment. What you do in front of these idiots is you pause for a selfie kissing, and then you post that to show just how effective all this assholery is. But in Seattle this year, Mama Tits took them on, shouted them down, beat them with their own Bible, judge not lest you be judged, and won, really won the day. And these haters, what they managed to do, they made a drag queen famous. That's all their hate did. That's all their hate accomplished at the Seattle Pride Parade. They made another drag queen famous. Maybe it's time to knock it off. Really, the repenter parish signs, guys, they're not knocking a dick out of any fag's mouth. They really aren't. We don't know what you get out of this, except perhaps to battle those inner demons, that desire to put a dick in your own mouth. Studies show, science shows, backs up what queer people always kind of knew. You hook a homophobe's dick up to a penis meter, you show them gay porn, and they get hard. You're externalizing this internal battle against your own desires. You're not fooling anyone anymore with this repent or perish shit. Like Mama Tit said, you can join us and we will welcome you with open arms. That doesn't mean you have to be queer. It doesn't mean you have to start sucking cocks. It just means you have to let go of the hate and the anger. It's not getting you anywhere. It's just making you ridiculous and it's making drag queens famous. Just wait. This year, Mama Tits in Seattle got in your faces with a microphone and some well-chosen words off the top of her head, and she won pride everywhere you go next year, guys. I promise you there will be a hundred drag queens getting in your face trying to get this kind of Mama Tits mojo for themselves. Pride is not going to be any fun for you next year. You are just going to make a hundred drag queens famous all over the country instead of just one. So haters, just fuck off, stay home. And people who think queer people are the intolerant ones, please know that these motherfuckers, again, show up at every pride parade in the country every year, year after year. And the worst that's ever happened, the worst a gay person has ever done to them is get in their faces and scream Bible verses back at them. Mama Tits did that. Otherwise, we're really pretty tolerant of their presence. Very tolerant. Tolerant in ways that you people, right-wing, fundy, Christian bigots, would not be tolerant if we showed up at your Easter the way you insist on showing up at ours. Okay, coming up in this show, Maduri. She's a educator and columnist on adventurous sexuality, and she really is the person who popularized shibari, the art of Japanese bondage, in the United States. She's coming up on the show today to give advice with me. Also coming up on the show, a comic books expert, Paul Constant is here to settle the eternal debate 
is the X-Men character Mystique by or what? That riddle solved and Maduri and your questions now. Hi, Dan. So about a year ago, I met um, a guy on, via online dating. Um, he was nice and he was perfectly fine, but there wasn't really, there wasn't any romantic connection. So um, when he asked me to go out on a second date, I let him know as much. And that was the end of that. So fast forward to about like a year later and he sends me a little love note saying, Hey, you know, I've got like tickets to like, or I'm getting tickets to like your favorite thing and it's not a romantic at all. So calm down. I just know that you really like it and like, it was fun. So do you want to go? And I'm just like, Oh, you know, okay. I, I, I'm thinking, Oh, are you trying to like weasel his way back into like my dating life? Um, I don't know. I just said no because it sounded like fun and he said he understood it wouldn't be romantic and whatever. So, Fast forward a little bit more as we're getting closer to the date of the actual event, and I kind of asked him some logistical questions, and then he's all like, oh, my bad, um, I don't actually have the tickets, <laughs> and I'm just kind of like, really? Like, what is that all about? And I started kind of thinking, like, maybe the whole ticket thing was a ruse to, like, you know, get back to talking to me again, Um and then he's like, oh, well, do you just want to hang out anyway? So I'm like, oh, all right. So is that what that was all about? Like, I'll say that I'm getting these tickets and then we'll just like kind of hang out and be friends again. Um, so anyway, like, even if he is making it up, like, maybe he didn't. Maybe he actually tried to get them and he couldn't and whatever. But, like, let's just assume he's making the whole thing up. Like, sh- should I really give a shit? Like, should I really care? Like, like he's a, he was a nice guy and... Hanging out with him might be fun, but I just kind of feel like if he's making up this whole thing to, like, talk to me again, like, is that a problem? You went on a date with this guy, and you determined on that date that you are not interested in anything romantic with this guy. And then he calls you with this offer of tickets to whatever it was. Um, And he, as you know, as I know, as everyone listening to this knows, that when he called you with that offer, tickets to whatever, that he's trying to weasel his way into your pants. He's just trying to get you. Obviously, he knows that you weren't interested in seeing him again. Maybe you communicated that to him clearly, hopefully explicitly. And so he calls you with this, let's be buddies. Let's hang out. I have tickets to a show. And we both know, subtext, 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 that I'm trying to weasel my way into your pants with stuff. And then when you said you would go with him, you kind of in that moment played into a misogynistic stereotype about women, that women in the dating scene are mercenary users who will let men that they are not interested in buy them shit. And if men buy them shit, dinner, drinks, tickets to shows, they will hang out with them, even if they have no interest in them romantically or sexually, even when they know the guy is buying them shit because he is interested in them romantically or sexually. We will hang out with you if you buy us shit. That is not helping, right? And now, you know, when he pulled it back and said, ha there are no tickets, you are in this difficult position where you either have to go hang out with him anyway because you want to be friends, which you really kind of don't want to be, or tell him you don't want to hang out with him because there are no tickets and confirm the mercenary user stereotype about women on the dating scene. Sorry, that's kind of dark, but I really do think that that's what you've blundered into here. When he call, when someone calls you and asks you on a date, I have tickets to X. I'm going to Puerto Vallarta. Will you join me? And you've already established you're not interested in them, communicated to that to them. You say no because you damn well know that they are trying still to get into your pants now with offers of goods and services and tickets to shit. So you should have said no. 
Now you either have to agree to go hang out with him knowing full well that he's trying to weasel his way into your pants or you have to tell him to fuck off because it's true what he's already concluded about you, which is that you are one of those women who will date men, hang out with men, see men that she is not interested in so long as he is buying her shit. In future, should this happen again, here's how you can finesse it. Here's how you can go to the show with the dude that you're not interested in while communicating to him that you are perhaps interested in a friendship as equals and you're not trying to use him and you're not trading your time and attention for goods and services. When he says, I have two tickets to X and, you know, I know you're not interested, but it might be fun to hang out as friends. You say, yeah, that would be great. Let's hang out as friends. I insist on paying for my ticket. If he insists on not allowing you to pay for your ticket, you insist on buying all the drinks. You insist on paying for the meal before. You communicate in that moment that you are going to be equals and go Dutch and be friends and there's no obligation here and you're not expecting him to pay you for your time and attention. That's the only way out. Now you're kind of fucked. Now there's no way out. You either go hang out with him, no tickets to his show, or you refuse and confirm, in his mind at least, the stereotype. That some women, not all, but some, are mercenary on the dating scene. Hi, Dan and me, Tech Savvy at Rescues. Uh, I am a married guy in my mid-30s, so is my wife. We have two young kids, a toddler and a one-year-old. Uh, we're both busy career types, and I guess as not, the, not an unheard of problem, um, we haven't had sex for pleasure since conceiving our first child, which was about three and a half years ago, almost four years ago, and was immediately after getting married. My wife is prescribed uh, a few pharmaceuticals by her psychiatrist, and um, as has happened sometimes, uh, one of these kills her libido um, and any kind of sexual response. Um, this drug is normally paired with another drug that uh, mitigates the libido killing effect of the first. Um, so when they're both on, you know, everything is fine. We had a good sex life before we started trying to conceive. Um, because of concern about the safety, um, while conceiving, pregnant, and breastfeeding any of these, any of our two children or any future children, um, the drug regime gets changed uh, such that her libido is completely gone. Um, if I'm touching her sexually, I may as well be touching her elbow. There's really just nothing happening. Um, she says that she feels bad about the lack of sex, but she doesn't respond when I kiss her or hold her. Um, and I have a very hard time wanting uh, to have sex with somebody who doesn't want to have sex and is definitely just going to be tolerating it as an unpleasant necessity. So I guess my question is, um, should I fake it till it feels okay for me if she's willing and in, you know, gung-ho to go to, you know, have sex when even if it's not doing anything for her? Um, if If that's not something that I can get to is, is continued celibacy ruining any chance that we're going to have at a future sex life together. Um, I'm kind of getting at a crossroads about this because we're thinking about a third kid, which is going to be another two years of no libido for her. So kind of, kind of don't know what to do. So uh, I have an idea for you and the wife thinking about a third child, uh, fucking dopped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually we had, we had talked about that you know, kind of when we were getting the process started and we're like, well, you know, if we have any, we were getting toward the part of our thirties where we're thinking, oh, you know, this might not be the easiest thing in the world, but we kind of just knocked it out of the park for the first two kids. Okay. Or it really never came up again. There's also the option but, of stopping it too, which is plenty. You've replaced yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. And, you know, I, I love my kids and I would love to have a third, but I think, you know, the family would still feel 
wonderful with two. The conversation I think you need to have with your wife is about the importance of maintaining your sexual bond and, and that intimacy. Because if you become increasingly sexually estranged, if you're in this position for, what, six-ish years of either going without sex, of there being no intimacy, or using your wife like a human fleshlight, which leaves her feeling whatever it is she feels about that, and you feeling terrible, eventually, you know, what happens if you cheat? What happens if in desperation X happens? What happens if the estrangement becomes permanent, even absent cheating, and your marriage falls apart as a result? That's not going to be good for the two kids that you have. That you, It's not selfish of you two to prioritize your sex life and your sexual connection, particularly if being monogamous within this marriage is hugely important to you both. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, which it is. You know, in a sex-negative culture, people are told that it's never okay to emphasize the importance of sex or think about sex or prioritize sex in their relationships. People make this mistake when they're picking partners. They pick partners that they are not sexually compatible with at all and wind up with people that they're emotionally compatible with that they don't want to fuck or never wanted to fuck, and it never gets better. That's not a thing that improves over time. And in a marriage, people wind up feeling like, you know, if we prioritize sex over parenting – if we take our eyes off our precious children for two seconds to fuck each other, that we're being terrible parents. No, you're being good parents when you do that because it's in your children's interest that you two stay in love and keep fucking. That's an important part of that. All those oxytocins or whatever the fuck they're called that you release during orgasm, looking into each other's eyes. I always talk about this when I talk about me and Terry. This is so important. Like long-term relationship, marriage, children, parenting, it's fucking stressful. You need those moments yeah. where you're looking at your partner's face and coming so that when you're arguing with that same face later, some part of your reptile brain is going, don't kill it. You need it. You know, there are times I want to wrap my hands around Terry's throat and kill him. And some part of my reptile brain is going, no, no, no. You need that throat for later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and you guys should be able to have this conversation about sex in your marriage, especially if you're monogamous. And especially if monogamy is monogamy a deal breaker. If you cheated, is it over? Um, I've never asked the question. I've it wouldn't be a deal breaker for me. I would, you know, I love her through anything, and I could absolutely get over it if if she cheated, or even if she asked me, you know, hey, I, I want to do X, Y, Z. I I would be open to it. I, mm-hmm. I've never asked her that because it's never been something I've been interested in. Mm-hmm. It's never I, something I could really see happening. You know, okay, well, and, have you asked? You know, I mean, had this bumper. Before you married, did you guys say this is going to be a monogamous relationship and monogamy is very important to us both? It was it was implied. And, well, that's, yeah, there was definitely that was the understanding. Okay, well, that's bad to have it implied as opposed to stated. Those are the sorts of things that's you want true. on the table and make explicit going in. Yeah. Well, I started listening to your podcast too late. It was uh, <laughs> post marriage. So could have used you a couple, a couple years before. I should start a pre-marriage counseling service. I think you should have that conversation now. And from a place of concern for your children, if you must frame mm-hmm. it that way, which all parents must frame everything somehow, it seems, mm-hmm. in our culture. Just like what would it mean if I cheated? What would it mean if you cheated? You know, this celibacy is hard and I can't keep, you know, treating you like my clenched right fist and jacking off inside you because it leaves me feeling terrible. Well, yeah, I mean, t- just to be clear, that's actually not what's happened. We've kind of just gone without sex for a long time. Okay, well, so it's not that's yeah, untenable. It's not that I, I feel that I'm using her as a masturbatory aid. It's we're just not having sex. Okay, well, have you guys talked about the fact that you're not having sex? We have, and you know, she said, you know, this is something I'm worried about, and you know, I think about this all the time, and I don't want you to go without. 
And, you know, but it, that's just kind of where the conversation ends. You know, when I, when I touch her, when I kiss her, there's not really the sort of, you know, natural kind of physical chain does, of events that, that to, you know, two people who seem to want to have sex with each other. Does she miss sex? Does she ever say that she misses it? I don't think she, I don't think so because I think the libido is just not there when, when the drug regimen is the way that it is right now. And she's never expressed any interest in shaking up that drug regimen. People can try different types of antidepressants. Some antidepressants will knock out one person's libido but not knock out another person's libido. And sometimes the trick with antidepressants is to try a few and 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 mix up your drug choice until you find the one that handles your depression without killing your crotch. Yeah, I mean, I think that the way that, that she feels about, you know, making sure that the drugs that she's on is absolutely safe for when she's carrying, when she's conceiving, and when she's breastfeeding kind of pins us into a very small box because okay. there's never going to be a psychiatrist who says to you, you can definitely take this drug. It's okay for gestational kids mm-hmm. because nobody does that research, unfortunately. Okay, well then... So in order to be safe, yeah. yeah. Well, then in order... There's lots of ways to be safe, right? Yeah. A- and do you want your kids to grow up in a, you know, a stable home? Do you want to be together married to each other without, you know, having to drag your kids through a divorce and mommy's house and daddy's house ever. Of, of course not. Then stop having kids. Don't have a third kid. Or you tell me, can you be celibate for another two, three, four years before your wife can go back on the drug that knocks out the libido side effect of the depression drug she's already taking? I think I could, but maybe that's just me being naive because, you know, you only get one shot through life and I don't know what it's like to be celibate for another two years, three years on top of basically how long we've been celibate as is. Which is how long? So it's been, you know, it's been about almost three and a half years, you know, other than sex for conception. So it's just a period of a few weeks in between the kids. Two is enough. In in my opinion, that I, I think, you know, and I, I can't tell you what choice to make, but if I were you, I would be at a stage where I would be thinking, we can have another kid and get a divorce because something's going to happen, or we can stop it too and rebuild our sex life. And if in the future we want to think about another kid, there's fostering, there's adopting, if we want to grow our family, we have options that will allow us to grow our family without this sexual estrangement you know, this, this, uh-huh. this, uh, fissure becoming a chasm that ultimately, uh, breaks us up, drives us apart. Sex is powerful. We can be in denial of it, but denial only gets you so far. Sex is powerful and sex and celibacy and denial, it tears people and cultures. And as we've seen in the Catholic church institutions apart. Yeah, no, that that's true. That's true. And I, I kind of just need to you know, toughen up and just really bring this out in the open and make, make it very explicit that this is something that we need to, you know, we need to get working again. And it's something you need to do, not just for you and your selfish dick and your desire for orgasms. It's something you need to do for each other and for your kids and for your family. If Uh monogamy is important to you both. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck, dude. Thanks. Thanks so much for calling. uh. My pleasure. Hey, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old straight female living in California. I'm a little bit ashamed to say that I've never been in a serious relationship at this point, even though I would definitely describe myself as a relationship person, and even though I've had um, a healthy number of partners. 
So I will say that I do like having sex. And while I don't usually have sex on the first date, I don't necessarily restrict myself after that. But it seems like I've fallen into this pattern of dating or falling for guys who seem to be interested. Um, but then they always pull the I don't want a relationship card. The problem is that most of them end up with other girls in a relationship shortly thereafter. So at the end of my most recent swing, the guy that I genuinely liked and thought I had good chemistry with told me that maybe I should stop casually dating because my mindset just isn't there. My question is, how can I date with the intention of a more serious relationship without scaring guys away? I don't want to be the girl who asks on the first date if a guy is looking for something serious because I feel like that would be more harm than good, even wrong. And frankly, it would freak me out a little bit if the guy said that he was looking for something serious, which maybe is a little bit crazy on my part. I've always been kind of a believer in these things happening really organically when two people just hit it off, but lately it doesn't necessarily seem like that lays down the groundwork for you know a solid relationship in my experience. Um, I'm also someone who tends to be picky, but once I find someone, I know that I can get a little bit attached, so that could be playing a factor too, but I just wanted to know, you know, how should I be looking at relationships and dating if I do want a serious relationship, but, you know, I don't necessarily want to get married right away or anything like that. I don't know what to tell you besides you're 23 years old and you should chill the fuck out and every relationship you're going to be in is going to fail until one doesn't and the guys that you have uh, dated briefly who then moved on from you and into other relationships. You're only 23. Presumably those other relationships that they've moved on to have not been lifelong commitments. They can't have been commitments for very long at all, right? They're just in new relationship dating new people. And those could be very short term relationships for all, you know, um, it is weird though, that you say that, you know, you want to communicate that you are open to, being in a relationship, but you're a little afraid of guys who might say the same thing back to you that, you know, if you're not open to dating guys who are willing to communicate to you that they are looking for a more serious relationship, you're kind of the author of your own misery in that. If you are disqualifying guys who might be up for what you're up for, that's you communicating to me and everyone else and to yourself subconsciously at least, that you don't really want what it is that you say that you want. So maybe the reason all of your relationships have been thus far uh, short-term is because you aren't truly interested at the moment in anything long-term. Because if you were truly interested in something long-term or something potentially long-term or a relationship, you wouldn't be running from the guys who were open about that. You wouldn't be bolting. They wouldn't be scaring you off. You get what you want by asking for it. You get what you want by finding other people who want the same things. Um, if you have this romantic rom-com notion that love happens when you least expect it, that love happens when two people get hit by lightning in the London tube somehow and it's magic and there's Hugh Grant or whoever the current rom-com figure of the moment might be, disabuse yourself of that. Love comes because people are out there who know what they want, willing to put that on the table and are looking for people who want the same shit they do. So you're not going to bump into Zac Efron at Trader Joe's and fall instantly and magically in love. You are going to meet somebody. You're going to go on a date maybe or hang out or hook up and you're going to say, let's hang out some more. I'm actually like reached a stage where I'm interested in a relationship and he's going to say, you know what? Me too. And then maybe it'll move off in that direction, but you got to make it go there. You got to drive it off in that direction. Hi, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old college student in the Midwest. 
Um, back in September, I met this guy. We really hit it off. Um, I was dating someone at the time, so we just became uh, friends. And um, eventually, uh, we realized that we were in love with each other. So now we're dating, and um, he's fantastic, and I've never felt this way about anyone. He's moving about 10 hours away in August, and I'm staying in school and where we are now. I guess I was wondering if you had any advice for uh, what we should do. I know things aren't going to be the same, whether we choose to try to do long distance or say our goodbyes. If you could offer up any advice, that would be wonderful. Thank you. 21 and in love. Fantastic. You say this guy is fantastic. You've never felt this way about anyone. I'm surprised that you would even contemplate uh, breaking up or calling it all off uh, as opposed to seeing if you guys can't make uh, the LDR thing, long distance relationship thing work. You have Skype. You can jack it together. Uh, you have college breaks, you have spring break, you have winter break, you have summers off. You should be able to make this work. I've seen people make med school long distance work. You can make, you're 21 years old, you're in college. When are you graduating? Next year? The year after? If you stay and do some summer courses, even sooner than that? Uh, a connection like the one you believe you may have with this guy. You've only met him in September and only recently started dating him. You can't be sure that this is a true love match. But connections like the one you've described, they don't come along every day. That's not something to discard uh, because of a 10-hour distance. That's something to uh, fight for. So get on Skype. Buy a car. Uh, get a credit card that earns you miles so you can get airline tickets. But uh, I would encourage you to see if you guys can't make the LDR thing work, if it is fantastic and you have never felt this way because it might be a while before you feel that way about somebody else. Hey there, I'm a female straight in Canada. I just want to know if I'm on my way to becoming a homewrecker. I'm talking to this guy online. He has a girlfriend, but he has, we have a shared fetish. And uh, he's too scared to ask his girlfriend to do this fetish. And he, he tried telling her, but she kind of like rejected and, and thought it was weird. And like we get along and we talk about this fetish openly. And I think he is starting to like me a lot. And I kind of like him. I don't know if I should feel bad about talking about this stuff to him or if I should just stop. I don't want to be a homewrecker. I don't want to ruin someone's relationship, but I feel like it's about time he breaks up with her because they're not, they don't really seem to be sexually compatible. That's about it. I think I speak for everyone when I say, I wish you'd said what the fetish was. I'm dying to know what kink we're talking about here. Um, but you didn't, and you didn't leave a callback number, so we'll never know. This will be a mystery for the ages. You say you don't want to be a home wrecker, but you know, there are some homes that need wrecking. And if he and his partner are not sexually compatible, if he is running around, uh, you know, talking to other women uh, about his kinks, uh, perhaps thinking about getting with other women about his kinks, and this is a violation of his, you know, the terms of his relationship with his current partner. That's just a lit fuse, and eventually it's going to go boom, and the home is going to be destroyed. You know, it's shitty. Generally, the advice I would give somebody who somebody wants to cheat on their partner with them is you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't aid and abet somebody who's doing something shitty to somebody else. There are times when it is permissible to be the incentive. You know, the incentive for somebody to come out. There have been plenty of cases where some guy's got a girlfriend, he's closeted, and he meets some guy and they start 
hanging out and they start hooking up and the new boyfriend is like, you got to come out. You can't keep lying to your girlfriend. Or the, it doesn't even say that, but just kind of represents that in his life. And that was the incentive that he needed, the closeted guy who's already lying to his girlfriend about being interested in her at all, to come out and to live a more honest and open and ethical life. And the and he may not have made that choice if it hadn't have been for that boy coming along. You could be you know, the kink version of that. You could be the girl coming along with whom he's much more sexually compatible, with whom he can have a much more honest relationship. You could be the incentive to end a relationship that isn't working and go pursue a relationship with you perhaps or with somebody else that begins at a more honest place and prioritizes sexual compatibility. So they haven't been together long. If we're not talking about kids uh, in the mix – if it's a relationship that needs to die and is going to die anyway, if it's a home that's going to be wrecked eventually, you can go ahead and Miley Cyrus the shit out of it. You can be the wrecking ball. Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-20s gay woman living in Atlanta and actually have a question about interviewing. I'm currently in the process of interviewing with new companies. I'm happily employed with my current company, so I'm really looking for the right fit. I've always lived in San Francisco. I grew up there and interviewed uh, with my current company when I was there, so I never had to worry about this before. Um, but I'm really not interested in working for a company that would be anything less than welcoming to the LGBT community. And I'm just kind of curious, how do I, I guess, come out in the interview process or get a feel for their environment? I don't want to be unprofessional uh, and talk about, you know, my personal life too much, but I also don't want to waste anyone's time or uh, end up in a job where I'm going to be feeling pressured as, I don't know, stay in the closet. I don't, I've never been in the closet before. So any general advice on kind of how to feel that out and, and the best way to handle it in a professional way. I think the best way to do it is to do your homework, to look into the company that you're applying at uh, and find out if they have a queer employee organization, if it's a big enough company, you know, if it's a Google or an Amazon or a Microsoft. Are there qu queer employee uh, associations at that company? If it's a smaller company, uh, to find out if they have anti-discrimination policies, uh, you can look into where they're located and find out if there are state or local city, county laws that apply that offer workplace protections. Um, what you don't want to do, I think, in the interview is give them the impression that you're one of those people who's going to see anti-gay bigotry under every potted palm in the office. So you need to be a bit casual about it and say something during the interview about how, you know, I'm a lesbian and I'm just curious about what the anti-discrimination policies are uh, and the workplace protection policies are uh, at your company. And then just be very blasé and matter of fact about it, not accusatory in any way, not prosecutorial, just easy breezy and fold it in with six or seven other questions that have nothing to do with you being a dyke uh, that you will also ask the interviewers. I say all of this never having applied for a job in my life. Good luck. Hey, Dan. I'm a 20-something great male from Massachusetts area. And uh, I'm dating a switch. I'm less kinky myself, but I'm more than willing to indulge. I seem to do pretty good at the dummy side, but I'm having a hard time getting into the subby mindset. And I think I'm sort of maybe subconsciously putting her off. Like, so she really wants to be dummy, but maybe she has a hard time doing it. And I was wondering if you had any advice on how to get into the sub mindset. 
Joining me in the studio to help answer this question, Midduri, who, how would you describe yourself? What is your role in the world? I was going to call you like a kink fetish world superstar. Uh, I'm, I'm a sexuality educator. An author. Yeah. And performer. And artist. An yeah. artist. Um, sexuality educator, artist, crazy cat lady. It, 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 meeting you is, is weird for me because <laughs> you're from San Francisco yeah. and you've been such a huge presence uh, in the kink fetish world. You've written these books, Wild Side Sex. The Seductive Art of Japanese Bondage, which really kind of broke uh, the Shibari thing yeah, across that, the Yeah, that was actually the first English language book on on the topic. And, you know, the funny thing is when we first did that, the editor wasn't even sure if it would sell much. And it sold hugely. It's, yeah, it's like something approaching 100,000 copies or something like Define that. Define Shibari for readers or listeners who may not know what that okay, is. Okay, Shibari is um, a Japanese erotic rope bondage practice. Mm-hmm. Okay? And... There's a certain visual pattern, though it, people over here make it more complicated than it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, much in the way that in North America we have kind of a cultural memory and romanticism of um, cowboys and cops and robbers and uh, – that filters into our erotic exploration. Mm-hmm. The the romance of an imagined, really a rom- imagined or lingered upon medieval Japan influences and colors. So it's essentially Japanese people playing sexy prisoner games with echoes of romanticized Japanese medieval period. And a lot of people, when they first see it, think mm-hmm. what I, I believe my, my husband said when he first saw mm-hmm. it was, oh my God, it's like, competitive bondage macrame. Is that insulting? uh, um, uh, When it gets down to it, it really is Japanese version of cops and robbers with rope and sex. Mm -hmm. That's it. Um, When it's become, and when it's made overcomplicated, the passion of it maybe gets lost of it. The focus becomes on the display of technique as opposed to the eroticism of the feeling. Yeah, and uh, the the actual passion of the practitioners, sure, you know, there's there's the the amazing photos and the the hot porn representation. Mm-hmm. You know, hot porn and hot photos are ways by which to store our imagination, right? Same over here mm-hmm. in the West and uh, in the U.S. And uh, uh, how we actually shag isn't <laughs> what it's like in porn, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, because we don't have fluffers and makeup touch ups and, and Speak for all yourself. that. Sort of, oh well, I have hey, a staff. you know, hey. So yeah, the the actual practice of shibari is um, uh, sexy and messy, and there's certain visual components of it that echo. Yeah, but it's not neurotically precise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the 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 gorgeously detailed photo stuff is an inspiration. So how did you get into Shibari, how how did you become the sort of Shibari missionary, the the, the person responsible, kind of breaking this thing out, yeah, and, uh, and popularizing it? It really, you know, I think of kink communities. Uh, you look at bondage porn, sort of mm-hmm. pre two thousand two thousand one, pre Midori, and you didn't see this. And after you know post Midori, yeah, uh, you see Shibari everywhere, and it became very popular and became a huge part of like the BDSM experience and the kink community at classes and people learning how to do it. How did you find it? How did you get into yeah, it? Yeah, well, honestly, um, let's see. There's the childhood visual influence because I did grow up in Japan and I did watch – it's like watching 
Wonder Woman and Batman and Catwoman over here and, you know, getting all kind of having funny feelings. When you see the tied-up superheroes. Right. The yeah. boy Robin in peril. Right, just like that, right? So I'm watching what's called Chambara or um, uh, Edo period sword fighting um, TV shows and movies. And there's, there's always the um, uh, the the maiden tied up um, unjustly with implied harm to her virtue. And then there's the, you know, the heroes that have been captured and the villains that have been captured and dragged to the magistrates. And I like them. Mm-hmm. I like them a lot. And in the neighborhood that I grew up in, there was a porn theater nearby. And as a nice little girl walking by it, I shouldn't look at the posters, but I did. did. <laughs> I totally did. As I'm walking by my little schoolgirl uniform, I totally looked. So there's that, the imprinting of that from Japan. And then um, in college, well, you know, lover, um, tie me up and shag me and you know, tie you up and shag you. And there was something in the back of my mind that I sort of like remembered, maybe not, uh, that, that thing that was stuck in my mind from Japan. Mm-hmm. And I had the fortune of you know, going to, I went to Berkeley and then shortly after I ended up in San Francisco and fell into what was to be named the sex positive movement. But it wasn't called that. Mm-hmm. It was just a bunch of people trying. Having sex. At, well, saying that, you know what, this, um, it, it emerged under the, the gloom and doom of the pandemic. And this whole idea that, oh, that's so smart. yeah, that the whole idea that sex should not equal death, loneliness, and um, being divorced from family and society, and that sex is part of our humanity. I've always argued that, in, in a way, when uh, the AIDS epidemic uh, mm-hmm. slammed into the country, into the queer community. It kind of – one of its sort of ancillary – I don't want to say benefits. One of the impacts, one of the effects it had mm-hmm. was it exonerated BDSM because mm-hmm. I remember growing up and even in Gayland, you know, BDSM was hugely stigmatized and then all of a sudden gay vanilla sex was dangerous and risky. Right. Death Getting sentence. fucked yeah. was dangerous. Yeah. Getting tied up was safe. Right. And suddenly you were being encouraged to, you know, do fantasy play instead of just fucking asses or getting your ass fucked. And it was safer to get tied up and spanked and jacked off than it was to get – to walk into a bathhouse and stick your ass in the air. Right. And and part of that whole thing also was, um, at least in San Francisco, was a bunch of people saying, look, this is humanity. We we can't – cut off sexuality, that it is not evil, it is not a death sentence. We need to find a way to to bring it into perspective. Mm-hmm. And I fell into that circle of people and, you know, people that I met that kind of, you know, took me under their wings were people like, you know, I didn't, they were like Carol and Joni and Robert and Annie and... They were just oh and, Annie Sprinkle, Carol Queen. Yeah, Robert Lawrence, uh, Pat Califia. Google all these um, names, Joni people, Blank, and learn yeah. about the sex positive movement and the folks who got it off the ground. And they were just people who were nice to me, mm-hmm. and I started going to things. And then along the way, uh, there were little pockets of people that were practicing Japanese inspired bondage uh, and. I was trying, and it rang true to me. It rang true to me culturally. It rang true true to me, I guess, as an artist that was not Mm self-aware, but as a sexual explorer, as a trisexual, I'll try it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And along the way, I'm like, you know what? I remember something about this, and I need to learn about it. And I poked at people, and there was really no, you know, Internet of relevant information. Robert J. had started the BDSM FAQ, uh, and that was like in its infancy, Mm -hmm. right? But there really wasn't an online resources other than a little pocket of, of the well and various places like that. So I started poking around looking for people that could teach me more things that felt familiar. And I found people. I found people that had learned in Japan. I found people that I could, and from Japan. And I learned, I played, I understudied, I shagged, fucked, um, experimented, failed miserably, and had a great time. And so when you look around now, and you see how much more mainstream kink and BDSM and bondage is, Mm -hmm. you know, when 50% of people reply to sex surveys saying they've tried bondage, experimented with bondage, Mm -hmm. when you can go to suburban uh, Mm -hmm. sex toy superstores in Mm -hmm. malls and they've got BDSM gear... Mm -hmm. It, does it make you proud or does it make you sort of pine for the days when this was much more renegade, much more, much like smaller scale yeah. and more in-group? Because it really is like a mainstream sexual – in the same way that oral sex was considered hugely kinky 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like you could write a whole novel about <gasps> that hinged no, – I always say – sucking dick. I know, oh, no. right? I always uh, tell people to go read Rabbit Run by John Updike because uh-huh. his yeah. whole book like pivots on a blowjob. Like, yeah. that's, how, that's how crazy and kinky yeah. and dangerous blowjobs were. <gasps> And now it's sort of like reached the same point with with BDSM and, mm-hmm. and kink. It's mm-hmm. about as uh, sometimes you can feel like in some communities about as out there as blowjobs. Okay, so, so has it lost the magic, the frisson, the, mm-hmm. the electricity? Okay, my answer is C, all the above. Um, all right, so sure, I long nostalgically for days past, but I think what I'm longing for is my own time of discovery. Mm. Right when it was all new to you, yeah. When it was new to me, sure. But I am also happy that the stigma and the shame is gone. Right, so that's really cool, and that it can foster discussions of uh, it's it's that whole sex positive thing. Mm -hmm. It's all part of who we are. It's all part of how we experiment. You try it, you don't like it, whatever. It's kind of like food. Some people are you know gratuitous omnivores. Some people are adventurers. Some people are like. I have, I have not ever had that. I'm never going to have it ever. I eat three things and they're all beige. Yeah, yeah. Um, Potatoes, pizza, and hot dogs. Right. Yeah, and it takes the stigma away, which is awesome. I guess where my concern is is that when there's a tendency I notice, especially in teaching in North America, that your workshops, your classes, uh, on yeah, sexuality. my workshops, yeah, that and. Um, that people have a tendency towards checklist checking off activities. I've done X, Y, and Z, and therefore I am hip or enlightened or sexually amazing. Well, just because you did it doesn't make you that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, or on the other hand, um, focus on technique and skill at the cost of connection, right? And now that it, the stigma and the shame and all that is reduced. I mean, people still have that, right? But as it's not what it was. Because mm-hmm. you would go into kink scenes and you would meet people who were there because they had to be there. Right. You'd meet people who were there because it, it expressed something very deep about yeah. who they were. Now some people will complain that you go to those scenes and you meet people who, because the stigma is so gone, mm-hmm. you meet posers, you meet people who are trying it on, you meet people who are enjoying the scene mm-hmm. and playing dress up, but it doesn't 
come from the heart. Is that a problem that this that the king scene can be swamped by the posers, for lack of a better term? No, because I was a poser once. And you never knew what posing might awaken in someone. Yeah, you never know. You know, at, at, when I was first going to this or that event, I was that girl in a dress-up outfit who didn't know Jack, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, I was. Who am I to say? So speaking of experimenting and yeah. speaking of new to you, here's yeah. this caller. Yeah. Not necessarily all that kinky, mm-hmm. open-minded, dating a, a, a girl yeah. who's very kinky and they're exploring uh, dom-sub. Yeah, and yeah. he's able to whip out the dom. He can play the dom, mm-hmm. but he's having a hard time getting, he says, into a sub-mindset. Any advice for him? Yeah, okay. So, And you do workshops around this oh, stuff, oh, around totally, uh, b- totally. introduction to BDSM, getting yeah. particularly women to like mm-hmm. uh, step into dom roles and, and find that dom within. What's your advice for this dude? Okay, so... Uh, my advice on this one is, okay, let's parse out top, bottom, dominant, submissive, uh, masochist, sadist, right? So if you like to whack or like to get whacked, you might not necessarily be a dominant or submissive. You might just like sensation. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you like to whack or be whacked because you like the aspect of control, when there's a, you get a charge from an aspect of control, then it's more dominant and submissive. Right, so you can actually have two people doing the same thing, enjoying it slightly differently. She could whack him. Maybe she's enjoying the power surge. Maybe she's enjoying creating the sensation, intense sensation in him. And when he's receiving the butt whacks, mm-hmm. he doesn't necessarily have to relinquish or surrender or go into a submissive place. But if he can find Pleasure, if he enjoys a sensation, a good butt whack will you know, stoke up the nerve endings and the blood flow for his uh, cock and bits and whatever he got and mm-hmm. uh, fire up his nipples and all that and uh, fluff him up for a good shag. So there could be spanking and having two people with overlapping yet slightly different pleasure. So what's the trick for him then to find that? Subspace. Okay, so the trick for him is don't worry so much about the I must achieve subspace, but whatever it is they are doing, okay, bring it back to the largest organ that you have, the skin. I was going to say brain. Yeah, brain is the most. <laughs> the brain is the most powerful. Uh huh. But the largest is the skin. If you overthink it, you lose it. Mm-hmm. But bring it on back to the body. Okay, do I like how it feels? What about this do I like how it feels? Don't overthink it. Ooh, ooh, I like how this feels. Oh, hey, my cock's getting stiff. Bring it back to the skin. Mm-hmm. And uh, bring it back to the skin. And So you're, you're saying that he should figure out what the activities they want to do together yeah. are and maybe just like lose himself in going through the motions and see what that awakens yeah. as opposed to trying to like – work his way into a headspace where then he can do X, Y, and Z, yeah. figure out what the X, Ys, and Zs that he wants to do are, and then let your body and your skin and your dick bring your brain along? Yep. So stop thinking about it. Stop so thinking about it. Um, and do it. Do it and pay attention to the skin, pay attention to the dick, pay attention to the pussy, or whatever bits you got, Yeah, you know. And, uh, uh, and if there's something about it that charges you, hey, you know, it might not be called subspace for you, but it might be some sort of a bottom space for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the sort of truisms, you, know, you talk to sex researchers 
Uh, you, you look at the polls, you look at the, the, the kink ads online, mm-hmm. that there seem to be a hundred kinky men for every one kinky woman. Mm. Um, and then yet you see a phenomenon like Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm-hmm. And my theory has always been that men know what their kinks are at 15 at sexual peak, <laughs> right? Men arrive at partnered sex having jacked off about their kinks already for five years. Mm. Um, but I think women – and it's just like my hoary theory that I pulled out of my ass and I have no proof for it. I think – you know, and I think the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon points this way. Women, I think, tend to come into their kinks later in life, closer to sexual peak. That there's this box called normal and the things you're allowed to do and that box can't contain people during their sexual peak. And men's like break out of that box and spring weird leaks at as teenagers when we hit our sexual peak and women later in life. Yet you were you, – you disproved my bullshit, hoary, pulled out of my ass theory because you were a kinkster and kinky and exploring as a young person, as a young woman. Yeah, true. Um, I had the benefit of a really unusual upbringing. So I didn't grow up with a lot of the cultural expectations of the women here. I, came, I stepped into the U.S. as an outsider. And I come from Japan where while we appear modest – we're we're a filthy lot. Dirty panties for sale in vending machines oh, oh yeah, and filthy, train filthy stations. Lot. Um, and what <laughs> what what appears as modesty is really a, a cultural motivation towards not making other people uncomfortable. And if you can find other people to be uncomfortable with, we get filthy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that perspective. I, I was lucky that I didn't come from a place of sexual guilt. So. Yeah. Sidestepping the Christian tradition. Right. And so I think for a lot of women here, um, there's – okay, first of all, men do have a lot of privilege around sexual self-exploration and permission. And women are not given a lot of privilege. I'm always telling the yeah. lady listeners that if a guy needs a goat in a canoe in the room to come, you're going to go to his bedroom and there's going to be a goat in the canoe. Right. And women should be as uh, aggressive and assertive about having the things that they need there or having the things they need to happen happen and and ask for and demand and be aggressive about it. And women aren't given, girls aren't given the message that they have earned and rightful entitlement. There are earned and rightful entitlement that everybody has, the right to agency over one's body, the right to say, I like this, I don't like this. Um, And boys are allowed that and girls still aren't. And since a lot of women, it takes time for them to work through to discover mm-hmm. that permission, to, mm-hmm. to grant it to themselves. Uh, I find I get tons of mail from young women mm-hmm. uh, who are dating young men mm-hmm. who have the goat in the canoe in the room, who mm-hmm. have a foot fetish, who are into bondage, who want to try water sports. And they're freaking out because it's not normal. They don't know what to do. They want a normal guy. And my advice is good luck with that because there are none. Right. Yeah. What's your advice for young women who – find themselves with a kinky partner. How do you negotiate that when you're with somebody who's kinky? The caller, he arrived at this relationship. She's kinky. She said, I need my goat, I need my canoe. And he's getting the goat and getting the canoe. And props <laughs> to him, right? But often what I get from a lot of young women is yeah. the guy asked for a goat and canoe and I'm running for the hills. Yeah. What's your advice when somebody is dating somebody who has kinks that they've expressed, who doesn't have kinks of their own or hasn't tapped into them yet or doesn't have the same kinks? Okay, so what I find happening, and this is, again, just broad brushstroke, like you said, a lot of times I'll hear this where, and uh, I, I do a, a women's weekend intensive, right, called Fort FM Women's Dominance Intensive, and I hear this all the time. Um, all you hear my, what? Hmm? You hear what? I, I hear the, uh, my male partner has the goat in the canoe in the bedroom, mm-hmm. and 
I, I, I don't know what to do with it, but I... And they're at the seminar to try to learn how to right, paddle the canoe right, right. and milk the goat. Right, yeah. And, um, we are uh, killing this metaphor. We are grinding yeah, this metaphor. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> pa- paddle the goat? Um, yeah, that too. Um, yeah, uh, and oftentimes I'll get folks, uh, I'll get women saying, how do I do these activities that he wants? That's not the point. The point is... What makes you feel awesomely sexy that might overlap? Uh, let's find that first. Let's draw that Venn diagram. Yeah. Let's figure out what makes you feel fabulous and sexy, whether that's topping or bottoming or gorgeous, luscious vanilla. I don't really care. Mm-hmm. Okay? What's going to make you happy? Let's take him and his list of um, 35 activities with 15 variables and the goat in the canoe um, out of the picture for now. We'll return to that. All right, girlfriend, what makes you happy? Mm-hmm. No, 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 really. Not, don't tell me what you're supposed to say. Now let's get on down and talk about this, and let's figure out what's going to make you happy, and let's back it up from there. Does it make you feel hot to you know, look like Wonder Woman? Okay. Does it make you feel sexy to be damsel in distress? When you were a little kid, were you the pirate? Or the captive? Mm-hmm. Were you the teacher or the student? Did you play mommy when playing house or did you play the kid? Were you the, the evil gatekeeper of the treehouse club or were you the one somehow always getting caught in playing tag? Mm-hmm. And we dig and it And if you up. can tap into that yeah. stuff, you can find overlap with the 35 activities and 12 variables. Yeah. Right. And we're going to find what makes you happy and bring you back to your joy. Okay. So here's... Here's my, okay, here's my saying about what BDSM and kink is, okay? It's childhood joyous play with adult sexual privilege and cool toys. I call it cops and robbers for grown-ups with your pants off. Right. Same thing. And orgasms. Right. If you're doing it right. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so for our caller, as well as for anyone else who's having that, that disparate experience on a, or want list. It's totally okay to say, whoa, wait a sec. Honey, I said yes, but I didn't say yes to everything now wants. Can can we just back it up and do one little thing? And can I get to try this, just one little thing? I realize I said yes, and now you're like giving me your whole negotiation list. Whoa, buddy, back it up. Because, mm-hmm. dude, or babe, you know, if this works out, we just try this one little fragment of one thing, and then if it's hot and we're together, we've now got, you know, 35 stuff and the 12 variables and the goat and the canoe and all these nights to explore it. So let's back it on off and let me just try one thing. Because you can scare someone off when what you want oh, to yeah. do is draw them out. Yeah, it's, it's, it's intimidating. And when uh, performance anxiety comes up, oh, my God. Yeah, there are skill sets that have to be learned right? in serious BDSM yeah. kink play. Yeah. And you can't just – somebody just can't read a book. Oh. They have to tiptoe up to that. They need mentors, particularly if they're going in for the – Or you can, you can take the super simple level. route and you know, um, add a blindfold to your hot vanilla sex and now it's kinky. <laughs> I'm always recommending blindfolds. Yeah. I don't think blindfolds are kinky at all. Yeah. You know, I, I, just this week in the Savage Love Letter of the Day, there was a woman who had a hard time uh, coming with her partner in the room. Ooh. She can masturbate fine with her partner out of the room. And I was like, okay, masturbate with him in the house, blindfold him, and have him sit in a chair. 
mm-hmm. at the end of the bed. Put headphones on him if you don't want him to listen. Just like bring him closer with a blindfold. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and you know the reaction of some commenters like, "Oh my god, that's so unbelievably kinky." And I'm thinking, nothing kinky about that at all. Yeah, but if the blindfold hasn't been in there before, now it's kinky. Anything new is kinky. Kinky is relative. Yeah, it's totally relative. Midori, you should read her books. You should definitely, if you have not seen it, get your hands on The Seductive Art of Japanese Bondage. She has other books that are out there. Wild Side Sex, The Book of Kink, Master Han's Daughter. Go to fhp-inc.com to learn more about Midori, her classes, to find her books, her lectures. Yay. And uh, you perform regularly with Body. Uh, body storytelling, as I did here in Seattle. It was fabulous. That was what brought you up. That's what got you into our studio. Yes, yes. And I performed for the first time with yes. Body. And it was very fun, very exciting. Yay. Got to tell a dirty story. Uh, look for Body. Might be coming to a city near you or get to San Francisco or Seattle sometime to check out Body Storytelling. And check out BodyStorytelling.com. Yeah, and um, I do a bunch of intensives. Uh, that's probably one of the best ways of learning. So... In San Francisco? Uh, San Francisco, New York, D.C. Look for Midori's intensive classes if you want to learn more about kink or awaken your inner dom or inner sub or find that ability that you possess as a child just to play. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old woman in a straight relationship. And my question is about nipples. My nips are the most erotic part of my body. Nothing turns me on more than arousing my nipples. I'm approaching the age where I'm thinking about having a baby and um, I'm wondering if the sensation in my nipples will go away in breastfeeding and if it doesn't, should I feel bad about that? I've never applied for a job really in my adult life. Like I haven't had to go look for a job for many, many years I think the last job I applied for was answering phones in a pizza parlor. Uh, so I can't really tell you uh, about job haunts. And you know what? I've never had a baby. Uh, so I can't really tell you about the impact of nursing on your nipples. Uh, but I'm sure there are plenty of listeners out there who've uh, had sensitive nipples and then had babies and then nursed. And they could call us and they could tell us how that all turned out. Did it make your nipples less sensitive, more sensitive? Do they continue to be the... Uh, titty-pleasing joy buzzers that you'd always known, or were they altered in some depressing, sad way? Give us a buzz. Let us know. Hey, Dan. I just saw the new X-Men movie, and I was curious. Could Mystique technically be heterosexual and bisexual and gay and straight? Because technically she can switch to a dude or a chick. So... Would that be possible where she could be a girl who likes girls or a guy who likes guys or a guy who likes, you know what I mean? Anyway, thanks, Dan. Well, now I know. Now I know what keeps straight people, straight guys up at night. When you rule the world and you have nothing else to worry about, you can dedicate all sorts of bandwidth to the sexual orientation possibilities of comic book characters joining me to help answer this question because I have never seen an X-Men movie and I have never read a comic book. I think since a Tarzan comic book, 
35 years ago that had a real impact on me, I have to say. Paul Constant, he's the books editor at The Stranger, my home paper in Seattle. Uh, I bother him every day for tea because the tea is at his desk. Uh, and you say that you learned how to read reading comic books. That is true. I was I was three. I was just three and I learned how to read on Charlie Brown and Superman. And I got to the X-Men a little later. I was probably, I don't know, five or six. But. So for this faggot and all the other faggots, what are the X-Men and who is mysterious? <laughs> it's Mystique. And uh, <laughs> is that Clinique's little sister? Who's Mystique? <laughs> I think that Clinique is is Mystique's daughter. Um, <laughs> I've I, heard of Clinique. I used uh, to do drag, <laughs> but I haven't heard of this Mystique. Well, you know, actually, I think a lot of gay people enjoy the X Men because there's there's sort of a, a a metaphor for how they're they're hated and feared for their um for their powers and they have to a lot of them choose to stay in the closet and a lot of them uh become self loathing uh monsters who get into politics and do things <laughs> in bathroom stalls and so it's it's there's there's some fertile ground there. I, that, I'm actually feigning more ignorance about the X Men <laughs> than, than I actually possess. I haven't seen any of the movies but I read I've read about that that the whole thing is extended metaphor for faggotry without any cock sucking yeah in the 60s it was more about civil rights and uh and it had it had more to do with with race but in the 80s and 90s it, it sort of shifted over into because the, they're born this way exactly and they're rejected by their families yes many of them are yes and the government hunts them down and performs experiments upon them yes yes and and Which they happened pass, to me they pass laws against them and things like that yeah uh, and I can float a battleship in midair with my brain. Yes, that is my super. You are the master of magnetism. <laughs> uh, so, who's, I, but I don't. I don't know who Mystique is. Mystique is in the movies. She was first played by Rebecca Romaine. I think back when she was Rebecca Romaine Stamos. This, I don't know if that's important or not. And in the current movies, she's played by Jennifer Lawrence, and she is naked. Uh, except for blue body paint and a couple of prosthetics, and she can change her shape. And she's generally an assassin in the movies. She can take on the 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 um, appearance of any character. She um, so she can be anything she wants. Yeah, she could be an elephant. She could be a pers- a man. She could be a woman, a child. Yeah, I think she generally sticks to sticks to humans. But she she has played. You know, she has taken on the form of children and and large burly men, and they never really identify where the mass and stuff comes from. Okay, so. This is the kind of comic book talk that makes me want to throw myself out the window here at the 23rd floor of the Washington Building. Uh, so is there a core to Mystique? Like when Mystique changes like – the Mystique as Mystique is female-bodied somehow but covered in blue sticky tape or something. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so Mystique is a woman. Uh, yes. Yeah. Bor- born a woman. I believe so, yes. And yeah. she can transition into anything, right? So when yes. she transitions into a burly man, does her core change or is there a woman deep down inside that burly man with her womanly desires, whatever they might have been? And have they ever – has she ever had a romantic partner? Does Mystique ever – Yes, she has. She's – um. so, she, her, so is, she, is she a lesbian? Is she straight? Is she bi? What is she? She's – I think she's bi. I think she's – um. you know, um, Michael Stipe used to describe himself as pansexual. And I think that Mystique is sort of a pansexual because in the comic book, she is, depending on the writer, uh, the mother of Nightcrawler, who is another X-Man. 
Um, so presumably she had sex with a man at some and point. Nightcrawler's superpower is attracting carp on a hook. Like, no, what does Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler do? teleports. He's he's an ex-Catholic. You'd you'd love the character. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, okay, teleportation is an important skill for Catholic, especially Catholic boys, especially Catholic altar boys. You want to have that ability to just evaporate, disappear. He disappears into the dark too. He's he's invisible at at, at night. So. Um, uh, yeah, so she she fathered a child, um, and presumably she didn't do that herself because her power is not self-inseminating, um, which would be a terrible power, by the way. Now, parthenogenesis, that's not yes. a power. Well, no. I mean, you know. That's what it's called, time. right? It is, yeah. Okay, so yeah. are any X-Men's parthenogines? Uh, not so far as I, I recall, no, no. Because that would be kind of cool. Or if they could bud like a sponge, just a little like thing grows on their shoulder and falls off and becomes another X-Man. I think, I think there's somebody who does that, yes. And there's uh, – there, there, oh my god. We could I, – I have a doctorate in superhero sexuality. So. <laughs> um, and we could go on because when it comes to comic books and superheroes, the bullshit is limitless. You could just make shit up. Yeah, yeah. Larry Niven, who's a sci-fi writer, wrote this great essay about Superman sexuality in the 70s called Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex. And it was about how <laughs> improbable Superman and Lois Lane's sex life would be. And it was just – it was wonderful because he took it so seriously. So basically – And what was his point, Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex? It was that um, – He would that ejaculate his, right through her he would yeah, kill her his sperm would be super and so like he said that the kent childhood home when he was you know a 13 year old boy was just riddled with tiny microscopic bullet holes from all the sperm shooting everywhere because he was masturbating all the time so he had a whole theory involving kryptonite cod pieces and stuff for inseminating lois lane and and a kryptonite diaphragm she would need yeah. a kryptonite diaphragm yeah but then the baby would be super powered and it just would get really ugly so oh it would kick its way out yeah Oh, yeah, that would be awkward. He really thought this through. And um, so, yeah, I think Mystique... And this is why we haven't cured cancer, because there's too many straight (laughs) guys sitting around thinking about super sperm. Lots of our smartest guys spend a lot of time worrying about what the thing's penis looks like. And, um, yeah, so Mystique's core always stays the same. She can take on someone's voice. She can take on someone's um, uh, powers if the powers are physical in nature. But um, so, if Mystique were to change into Al Pacino in Cruising and be you take on the form of a man and go to a gay bathhouse and fuck some other dude or get fucked by some other dude in a leather sling covered in greasy Crisco handprints, it would be straight sex. Well, it would be straight sex, except for I think that she identifies as a woman, so it's well, no, she'd be having sex with another man in the form he, of Al Pacino, right? But exactly, it would be yeah. heterosexual sex. Because you are right. You are in, right. Her, in her heart. In core, she's still mystique. Yeah, I, I I absolutely agree with that. Yes, um, yes, and I think you know. I mean, if anybody could, you know, I mean, if I could grow a vagina, I would certainly use it. And I'm a straight guy, and and but I mean, you know, I'm curious. I I, I some I, I wish I could grow a vagina on on Terry, on my husband, not because I want to use it, just I want him I want him to have one place where he can put his car keys. So every morning doesn't begin with the like panic look for the car keys because I could just say to him every morning when he's panicked and running around trying to find his car keys. Look in your vagina. That would be that. Well, Honey, you would have both you looked have... in your vagina for your car keys because nothing else goes in there. <laughs> that that would be a great superpower. <laughs> for those of us who don't go to superhero movies, you know, Captain America's tits almost got me to go to whoever that actor is. Almost mm-hmm. got me to for a superhero seconds, movie. Yeah. Maybe the Thor guy's cute enough. Is there a reason for people who aren't into superheroes to go to superhero movies? I've never seen an Iron Man movie. I've never seen. A Justice League movie, a Spider-Man movie. 
is there something there that I'm missing? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think so. No, I mean, I'm not. I, uh, you know, I'm excited to see all these things that I loved as a kid on the screen and and all that, you know, and and just, you know, uh, it's a whole new level of of sexual fantasy when a character is played by an actual human being. But I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not one of those militant ones who thinks that there's a, you know, there's not a superhero comic book for everyone. I don't think, you know, I think there is a comic book for everyone. I think like Alison Bechdel's Fun Home and, and what, what's my comic book? If you're uh, going to assign one to me. Have you read Fun Home? Yes, I loved it. Okay, well, that's the one I would assign to you. And the one about uh, the the girl's memoir about growing up in Iran. Yeah, Persepolis. Persepolis, which I, I just love. But but I draw you know distinction between graphic novels and sure, Spider Man yeah. bullshit. Well, yeah, it's a genre. You know, it's science fiction. Not everybody's into steampunk. You know, I mean, um, so but and and not everyone should be into steampunk. It's just it's 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 the a look it's a on hobby. your face when you say steampunk exactly mirrors <laughs> the look on my face when I said mystique the first time. Well, everybody has their prejudices, and mine <laughs> is steampunk. I draw the line at steampunk. I'm sorry, guys with the goggles. Hello, Dan. Thanks for all you've done for this X positive community. I'm Laszlo, and I thought it important to respond to the last caller in your podcast, 402, as he specifically refers to me in my Burning Man camp, uh, which hosts the Orgy Dome. Uh, his comments are simply off-base, and they're really untruthful. Uh, first, I don't run the Orgy Dome, although I'm one of the camp leads. Uh, this year will be my 15th burn, and our camp's 11th year on the playa. Second, I believe the podcast he was referring to is the Sex Nerd Sandra podcast. It's number 104 on the Nerdist Network, entitled Getting Late at Burning Man. Uh, I invite you to listen to uh, the segment in question, and it'll become clear that the gentleman I'm responding to took my comments, at least as he reinterpreted them, completely out of context. The caller I was, uh, I'm sorry, the caller said I was legitimizing the notion that you might simply be raped at Burning Man in the Orgy Dome. That's a direct quote. Nothing could be further from the truth. No reasonable person who has ever been to the Orgy Dome or actually listened to the Sex Nerd Sandra podcast would think such a thing. The Orgy Dome is a safe space at Burning Man for people to come and experiment with being sexually social. The operative word here is safe. We have very specific rules about conduct in the Dome. We provide condoms, lube, sterile towels. We admit couples and morsels only. We do not admit people who appear to be under duress in any form, be that as a result of drugs or alcohol or any perceived improper personal pressure. We make very clear that the Dome is a 100% ask-before-touching space, and if anyone is misbehaving in the Dome, they are immediately ejected. On Sandra's podcast, my fellow guest Jamie Waxman and I were discussing many aspects of sex at Burning Man. In fact, the discussion at the point, about 40 minutes in, had nothing at all to do with the Orgy Dome. We were discussing being generally responsible for oneself at Burning Man. In fact, one of Burning Man's core principles is being radically self-reliant. The point being made was that being self-reliant includes not taking drugs or liquids from strangers, which is the same advice I'd give to people in polite society. Now, I know these types of discussions trigger some pretty emotional responses and suspect that the person who called in was experiencing such a response and was objecting to what he heard, not what I actually said. I stand by my point uh, that attending a festival such as Burning Man requires one to exercise a significant amount of personal responsibility. Taking drinks or drugs from strangers is stupid behavior on the playa or anywhere else. Uh, suggesting someone not do that and reminding them what could happen if they do does not constitute, quote, legitimizing rape, unquote, at Burning Man or anywhere else. It's just good common sense advice. Uh, the Orgy Dome will be back at Burning Man this year. We'll be on the corner of 4&A. Uh, we all look forward to hosting this amazingly beautiful space, and we hope our uh, fellow burners will come and enjoy it with us. Thanks a lot, Dan. 
Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the girl who is interested in going to the Orgy Dome at Burning Man. And I wanted to let her know that that particular place is only for couples and more sums only. So she needs to make sure that she brings a partner with her or a friend. And that it's a largely unmonitored space. They do have some people out front to keep um, single people from wandering in, but they don't have a whole lot of uh, dungeon monitors around. And it can have a lot of that sort of swinger energy. If that's what she's into exploring, then she should check it out. In my personal experience of going to the Orgy Dome with partners, I definitely had some nice experiences of exhibitionism and voyeurism, as well as having a really nice place that wasn't a hot tent to go fuck in. Um, but I did get uh, thanked by some random stranger just passing by completely non-consensually and that kind of stuff. And I did have another friend who had a bad experience where he came at a really busy time. And there was a long line of people waiting to get in. And the monitors were basically yelling at people to either like leave or just go fuck and then get the fuck out. Um, so it can be kind of a high-pressure situation. I also wanted to let her know that there's a lot of other camps that have sexy play spaces that are a lot less crowded and also camps that throw play parties that are more curated and monitored and have welcome circles and things like that. So I hope that she has a really fun and sexy and safe time on Playa, but Black Rock City is a pretty shady town, so you still got to watch out for those date rapists and people that aren't really on top of their consent, just like you would in the default world. And I really hope that she has a wonderful time exploring her sexuality out there on Playa. I'm responding in episode 402, where you give advice to this woman who is saying that uh, she's worried about her boyfriend, husband, peeing. He has a reflex to pee when he's getting oral sex. That, that's my that's my problem. I uh, Someone will go down on me, and I will totally feel like peeing. And so I said, well, you know what? I probably don't have to pee, and I tried it anyways. And... Um, Instead of coming, I came pee. It was horrible. Like the most high pressure pee splattered into my boyfriend's face. And it was a deeply, deeply, deeply embarrassing situation. And so listening to this, I could only think to myself, no, no, Dan, don't do it. Don't do it. Embarrassing pee to the face, high pressure that could like peel paint. Honestly, just don't, don't, don't do it. Love the show. And we're going to leave it there. As always, a big thank you and a big wet, sloppy tongue kiss to all you Magnum subscribers. We appreciate your support. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Paul Constant on Twitter at PaulConstant. And follow Midori on Twitter at Planet Midori. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.